Welcome to the public rally. The chattering class was abuzz with, with the unprecedented news that a leaked opinion by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito that the court was overturning Roe versus Wade, which upheld abortion rights protected by the constitutional understanding that guarantees a right to privacy. But now, based on the leaked opinion, the court is primed to not only overturn Roe, but the notion of the right to privacy, which could undo other landmark decisions, including marriage equality. Joining the public around in conversation, we once again welcome Professor Carrie Baker. Professor Baker teaches courses on gender, law, and public policy, feminist social movements, and reproductive justice at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Professor Carrie Baker, welcome back to the public morality. Wonderful to be here. When we had you on last, uh, we speculated on the distinct possibility that Roe and, and, and Casey, the Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, would be vacated. It's one thing to speculate, it's different when facing reality. So I want to begin with your feelings when you learned of the leaked uh, opinion that Roe would in, in case he would be overturned? Well, I wasn't surprised, but having read the opinion, I found it pretty appalling. Now, I think it's important to know that this is a draft opinion wrote back in February, written back in February. So it's probably not going to be the final draft. It's, you know, Alito is clearly the author, so he's in the majority. It probably means that it's a five-person majority, which would include Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and Thomas. And the way the court works is that normally the person writing the opinion drafts an opinion, circulates it among the court, and it usually gets significantly revised. So I don't think what we saw will be what the final decision will be entirely. It was pretty extreme and pretty polemical. But I do think that it's a strong sign that Roe versus Wade will be overruled by that five justice majority. You know, in the in the court's history, uh, we've seen other landmark cases such as um, Brandenburg versus Ohio and the First Amendment, uh, along with Schenck versus United States, where the court is conscious, in my view, of a public mood as well. Here, uh, we've had a, 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 a law in Roe that's existed for, for half a century that, that is supported by a majority of, of Americans, albeit different degrees. What are the ramifications does this have by striking down Roe in that most of the people born, living today, were born in a post-Roe world? So what are the ramifications of that? Well, I think there, there are a number of levels. I think at one level, the court has never taken away significant established constitutional rights like this. So I think that's pretty revolutionary. I think we need to look at the decision, not only in the context of popular opinion, which, as you say, is very much in support of maintaining Roe. I think about 69 or 70 percent of people think Roe should remain on the books. But also the way that the court got to its current configuration, so which was very undemocratic and um, abnormal, right? At the end of uh, President Obama's, uh, or in the last year of President Obama's administration, he nominated Merrick Garland to replace Scalia when Scalia died. And that was in February. And Mitch McConnell, who at the time controlled the Senate because Republicans controlled the Senate, he blocked that nomination from even getting considered, from even having a hearing for 10 long months. And then Trump won and immediately installed Gorsuch. And then in Trump's last two months in office, RBG died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And within six weeks, they rushed through Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and placement on the court. And so, you know, McConnell had said with the Merrick Garland, nomination. Oh, it's an election year. We should let the new president appoint the Supreme Court justice, let the people weigh in. And then a short four years later, with just two months before the election, they jammed through the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And that is what gave them the majority that is, you know, going to overturn Roe. Chief Justice 
um, Roberts, who is, of course, very anti-abortion and very conservative, doesn't look like he's in that majority. And so if it hadn't been for that um, maneuver of McConnell um, and Trump, we wouldn't be having this decision. And so, you know, and this is also occurring in a broader context of voter suppression, gerrymandering, you know, the destruction of the Voting Rights Act with the Shelby decision a few years back, and the refusal of Congress to pass a new Voting Rights Act. So I really think that this is a sign of our crisis in democracy. I mean, I think that we've struggled maintaining a democracy from the very beginning, obviously. I mean, we were not a democracy for so long because so many people couldn't vote. Black people, Native American people, women couldn't vote um, until really quite recently, 1965. And then Shelby was gutted just a few years ago. And so I really think this is about a broader loss of our democracy and of democratic values and of the rule of law. And so for me, it's very disturbing. And I don't think that Roe will be the end of it. I mean, that overturning Roe will be the end. If you look at how Alito wrote that decision, it was very broad. Basically, what he says is if a right is not explicitly in the Constitution, and doesn't have a long history of being an established right, then the Constitution doesn't protect it. And so that can certainly be said of decisions like Loving versus Virginia, which struck down anti-interracial marriage laws. It could certainly be said about Griswold versus Connecticut, which struck down bans on contraception. It could be certainly said about same-sex marriage or any number of rights, even the right to have sex outside of marriage. The um, Lawrence versus Texas decision, which struck down a Texas sodomy ban. Um, you know, this country had fornication bans, which fornication means sex outside of marriage. It had bans on particular kinds of sex, like oral sex. Lawrence struck that down. I think, you know, Lawrence is could be easily overturned under the reasoning of the Alito opinion. So to me, again, it's quite appalling and quite alarming and quite extreme. Now, I don't know that the final decision will be written so broadly. I suspect it won't, but it could very likely be written that broadly. I guess to to to, to that to that to the, the your last point, at this at this juncture, does it matter if the final ruling is more narrow? Um, because fortunately, unfortunately, however you look at it, we've got a glimpse of the thinking of yeah. perhaps five justices. So that's sort of baked in, you know, to the ethos, is it not? Well, I'm not sure we have a glimpse of all five justices. I think of Alito as being one of the most extreme Alito and Thomas, I think it, the jury is still a little out on the new justices. We don't know enough about them. Um, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and, and Barrett. I mean, they certainly appear to be quite right wing, obviously. But, you know, I just don't know. And, and you know, hope springs eternal. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, yes. I mean, I, I think Roe will certainly be defeat, you know, be overturned. You know, Alito makes a distinction in the opinion between abortion and things like the things I mentioned, contraception, um, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage. And what he says is, well, abortion is different from those things because we can, um, because it involves human life. It involves a fetus. But the, the problem with that is that, first of all, they could come up with other reasons, random reasons for saying why these other rights aren't guaranteed. And um, the, the the whole framework of his decision could be expanded, as you say. I mean, this could be the first step and then they could go further in a later case. So we just don't know. We just don't know. I mean, what we do know is that there's a 6-3 uh, very conservative supermajority on the court that was placed there by, you know, um, political figures that want to roll back the gains of the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement and the gay rights movement. I mean, that's been their goal ever since Brown versus Board of Education, the Warren Court, you know, since Brennan and Marshall handed down all those decisions, significantly expanding the rights of minorities, of people that couldn't get those rights by majority decision of legislatures. And so I, I'm very worried. I'm absolutely worried. Um, I'm trying to just be measured and, and be somewhat like, you know, sort of think through it carefully and, and assess, you know, 
Is this the end of civil rights in the United States or not? By the way, one other thing I just want to mention is all five judges that are in that majority uh, with Alito were all appointed to the court by presidents who did not win the majority of the popular vote. And I, again, I- Except for Clarence Thomas. Okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. Uh, the first Bush was elected by popular yes. vote, right. Yes. In fact, he so was the, the last president. <laughs> who, who was, right. So, so Ro Roberts, the three Trump appointees, and, um, and Alito were all um, elected by presidents that didn't win the popular vote, which, again, is the legacy of the Electoral College, which was, you know, a legacy of slavery, right? It was the way the South could maintain political control and maintain slavery. Um, you know, that was sort of the condition on them, um, you know, doing, you know, being part of the union. And so I, I just think it's like the chickens have come home to roost. We had baked into our system all kinds of structural features um, that allowed slavery to continue initially, but then allowed white propertied males to maintain control over the government. And for a long time, you know, they had deniability. But now that they're so clearly in the minority, and so clearly um, engaging in all kinds of anti-democratic behaviors and um, quite frankly, violating the rule of law in many respects, it's, you know, it's hard to deny, it's obvious. I mean, and Trump, who was just so open about, about his agenda and then his language, you know, and there, were no, there was no more dog whistling once Trump got into office. It used to be with like the Bushes, they they dog whistled. Reagan dog whistled all the time. Welfare queens, right? But uh, drugs, you know. But um, with with Trump, you know, there was no. It was all out in the open. You've mentioned this on uh, several times. So I'm gonna, I'm going to come back to it explicitly. Back in September, I believe of 2021, Justice uh, Barrett in Louisville at the McConnell Center, University of Louisville. Yes. With, with um, Senator McConnell in attendance, said, and I quote, my goal is to convince you that this court is not comprised of a bunch of hacks, political hacks. Yeah. A part of, it's, you know, part of it's amazing that she had to even say that. Right. And I, and I guess, well, to, to that point, um, I, I guess that I take her at her word that, that's, that those are her beliefs. But my question is, when the stench of politics infiltrates the court, um, how possible is it not to see the court in that way? Uh, we've always looked at the court as this, this sort of this body that sits up on high, and and when politics infiltrates, they don't they look like partisan hacks. Well, call me cynical, but I think politics have also always fundamentally shaped the courts in good ways and bad ways, actually. But I think that it's not, it's been deniable and um, and kind of more subtle. Like it's been, I mean, for instance, when I say politics has always influenced the court, I mean, for instance, I think when it was, you know, nine white guys or how many ever white guys for years and years and years, I mean, they were clearly making decisions that were in their political interest, right? In their economic interest. And the people that were placed there were placed there to further the economic and political interests by the part by the presidents and the parties that put them there. That said, I think that they at least, um, you know, tried to deny that and tried to, for instance, follow stare's decisis, follow the rule, the precedent. And, you know, Alito, I mean, this was part of one of the parts of the decision that was so shocking to me was his discussion of stare decisis. I mean, it was full of holes. It was full of misrepresentations. And, you know, some of the arguments in there, my, my jaw was dropping. And if stare decisis is no longer one of the key principles of the court, um, then all bets are off. They can do anything. There's nothing um, holding them. And there's nothing that we can count on as far as the future and the kinds of decisions they are making. And, you know, just at the end of last year, there was another decision that was kind of, well, that was very shocking, which was the decision involving SB8 down in Texas, which was the um, vigilante abortion ban law that allowed um, private citizens to enforce 
an abortion ban. And, you know, that's right out of the playbook of white primaries, right? I mean, um, post, um, you know, during the civil rights movement, when um, white people didn't want black people to gain political power, you know, Texas delegated the, the administration of primaries to private parties to insulate that process from constitutional scrutiny. Well, that's exactly what happened in SBA, and the Supreme Court allowed it to happen. And since September 1st of last year, abortion has been banned after six months in Texas, even though that's blatantly in violation of Roe versus Wade, which is still law until the Supreme Court rules in this case. And so what does that mean? I mean, I wrote a piece saying, you know, it's an end run around the Constitution, any state can now pass a law that blatantly violates the Constitution as long as they delegate enforcement power to private parties. So what does that mean? I mean, it, it trashes the Constitution. So not only have they allowed states to ignore the Constitution and ignore federalism principles, which is the idea that federal law takes precedent over state law, but now they're saying any decision we've ever made, we can overturn on a dime. Stare decisis is a dead doctrine and we can just do whatever we want. So to that degree, I would agree with you that it's it appears to be more political in the sense that they've given themselves the own their the power to be able to just change their mind without any sort of justification to history or to previous decisions or, you know, because stare decisis, and you probably are familiar with this, uh, there's a five-part test, and it's a rigorous five-part test, and I can talk about that, but I don't necessarily want to get down into the weeds, but um, he eviscerates it. I mean, the way he talks about those five parts, almost every part is meaningless in my mind after um, reading that opinion, if this if this opinion gets a, adopted, which again, that's the kind that's the part of the opinion that I just can't imagine that, that he'll get five people to agree with because it's too fundamentally undermining a core principle and tradition of the court. And just for our listeners, give us a quick Reader's Digest uh, analysis of Stare Decisis so everyone is clear. Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. So stare decisis is Latin. You know, we lawyers love to use Latin. It's Latin for um, let the decision stand. And it's the idea that once the court issues an important decision, that decision should be respected and followed by the court in the future, unless there's been a significant change. You know, and again, there's five principles about of stare decisis. But, you know, in some, basically, it's unless something has significantly changed to um, justify the overturning of a precedent. And, you know, a precedent that's, you know, 50 years old is, is, is especially established and you need an especially strong argument for overturning. If it's a recent precedent, I mean, you know, the court has overturned precedent in the past. I mean, Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned, right? Um, you know, other decisions have been in, in Brown versus Board of Education, but um, it's rare. It's very rare. And, um, you know, the court for the stability of the court and for the idea that people should be able to count on the law and have it be stable and that the court shouldn't be a political body that just changes with the winds and um, reverses themselves, that there should be respect for past decisions. And that is, again, one of these rule of law, one of these core principles that our country has been built on that I think, at least in the way that a leader has written this decision, is being fundamentally over, over undermined. Another aspect uh, of this potential opinion uh, is, is the trigger laws that are already set to go. Talk about those, if you would, um, uh, to your understanding, about what are trigger laws and, and um, what might they do to impact a post-Roe world? So 11 states have laws that they've passed that basically say if Roe is overturned, abortion is immediately illegal. Now, 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion if Roe is overturned. Now, not all of them will ban it 
throughout pregnancy, but many of them will ban it quite early. And this number of 26 is based on a Guttmacher Institute study of the law. Some states have abortion bans that existed pre-Roe and have been not unenforceable because of Roe. And if Roe falls, um, will be or can be enforced again. Um, so, and, and many states have promised to ban abortion if Roe is overturned. And I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind, you know, you remember the war on drugs. How could we forget the war on drugs? It fueled the largest expansion of the criminal justice system and mass incarceration in the country ever and in, in the world. I mean, the U.S. has a larger prison system than South Africa during apartheid. And, you know, if Roe is overturned and half the states criminalize abortion, it will be our new war on drugs. It will be uh, a massive expansion of the power of states to throw people in jail, to prosecute them from crimes, not only people having abortions, but people helping people having abortions, doctors doing abortions. I think that, you know, and we know how destructive the criminal justice system is of communities, of families, of people's lives, of people's futures, even after they get out of prison. And so, I mean, and, and actually the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers issued a, a, a shocking report at the end of last year in November, which I can share with you about what will happen if, if Rose overturned and criminal laws in 26 states take effect that, um, I mean, already women are being criminally prosecuted for their pregnancies, but nothing like what we're going to see if Roe is overturned. Because women won't stop having abortions. Women won't stop having abortions if it's made illegal. They'll just be criminalized for it. Well, that brings me to my next point, because whenever there is a prohibition, a, a corresponding black market is, is created. And I see the potential for two black markets. Tier one would be the black market for women of means that can afford to go yeah. to the locations yeah. where abortion is safe and legal. Yes. Tier two, um, uh -huh. low-income women would not have that option. And there are nope. a myriad problems with the options that they might choose. Now, the last time we talked, you, you reminded me that there were medical advancements that may not make the post-world world as onerous, but... Um, do those um, advancements in, 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 in medical science mitigate those black markets I just outlined? So um, first, we know that making abortion illegal does not stop abortion. Countries that have criminal abortion bans have the same rate of abortion as countries that, ha that have legal abortions. So we absolutely know people will not stop having abortions. As you mentioned, pre-Roe, there was this two-tier access to abortion. Wealthy women who had private doctors or had resources to leave the country could get abortion. They, you know, hospital review committees would approve the abortions for women that were wealthy and powerful, connected in the community. And whereas poor women were the disproportionately the ones that ended up in emergency rooms, bleeding with sepsis, dying and disfigured because of illegal abortion. We know that. And we know that even now in the state of Texas, the same thing is happening. That poor women who can't afford to drive all the way out of state to get abortion health care are disproportionately suffering because of the Texas abortion ban. And post row, the same thing will happen. And by the way, I just wanna note here, 75% of people seeking abortion are low income women, people. And that's often because the same people that don't have access to abortion care also don't have access to health care, right? We have a privatized healthcare system in this country where many people don't have access. I mean, that's what Barack Obama was trying to do with the ACA to, to expand healthcare so everybody had it. And he succeeded to some degree, but there's still a significant number of people in our country and particularly undocumented people who are not covered by the ACA who don't have access to abortion uh, to healthcare and don't have access to contraception and are disproportionately ending up pregnant uh, uh, with unwanted pregnancies. So I, I completely agree with you that it's going to be the people who are the most vulnerable, people who are low income or 
for whatever reason, don't have access to health care or the resources to travel out of the country who will most be affected by this law and most be criminalized, right? They're already in communities that are over surveilled by police and don't have the resources to hire fancy attorneys if they do get caught ordering pills online. So I think all of that we have to keep in mind. But with regard to what's going to happen post-Roe, I make the argument in my own writing that post-Roe is not going to be like pre-Roe. And I say that because of abortion pills. We now have, unlike, you know, we didn't have this pre-row, but in, you know, the late 19, or 1980s in France, there was developed a pill called mifepristone. And then um, also in Brazil in the 90s was discovered a pill called misoprostol, which both, um, you know, misoprostol alone and mifepristone and misoprostol combined can, can, basically induce a miscarriage in early pregnancy very safely and very relatively easily and simply. And these pills are used around the world in countries where abortion is illegal and it's used very safely and effectively to end pregnancies. In, in Brazil, what happened is women were dying of, of illegal abortion at really high rates. And then all of a sudden that stopped. And the public health authorities is like, wait, what's going on? Why aren't, why aren't women coming into the emergency rooms dying and bleeding? And it was discovered that they had looked on the label of misoprostol, which is a ulcer medication, and saw, saw it said, don't use if you're pregnant, can cause miscarriage. And so women in Brazil started using it, and the rates of women dying from illegal abortion plummeted. And then it spread around the world. And I think the same thing will happen here. Uh, particularly misoprostol is is widely available in pharmacies and at vets. They use it for dogs for, um, I think it's used for um, like arthritis and dogs. It's very easy to go over the border and get it. Um, Mexico has it over the counter. You don't even need a prescription. Um, but as you say, there will be people in the middle of the country that won't be able to go over the border and get it. But um, with the internet and with the U.S. Postal Service and wide availability through um, networks of doctors based outside of the country and websites selling these medications, which are, again, are very easy to use. And there's a lot of information online about how to use them safely. I think that we will not have the situation that we had pre-Roe. Now, the problem is getting the information to people that this is available. And then the other problem I foresee is, you know, anti-abortion governments going after people, trying to find people using these pills and ordering these pills and helping people find them and prosecuting them, trying to prosecute them. So I'm not, this is a workaround. I, you know, the ideal is that the Women's Health Protection Act passes Congress and it's, you know, abortion is legal through medical providers in person throughout the country, but that's not where we are. And, you know, abortion pills are an amazing alternative, an amazing workaround. And activists on the ground are working really hard to put in place an infrastructure to help people get the information they need, get the pills and use them safely if they live in states where abortion is legal, and then if they have legal problems to help them. And an example is Lizelle Herrera, who lives in Rio Grande Valley, who was arrested for using abortion pills. And the, the charges were dropped out after an outcry, but um, she relied on a legal network that has been established in the country to help women who were criminally prosecuted or charged or arrested for using abortion pills. And um, that network is strong. It's growing. People are donating to it. And so, you know, this is war. I mean, this is where we are. You know, you mentioned the, the Affordable Care Act and, and, and the opportunity to, to expand health care. I'm wondering, for 50 years, has the debate been miscast? And I mean it in this, in this context. It, it's been a conversation between those who are pro-choice versus those who are pro-life. Yeah. But if we really, if we really nuance that, wouldn't it be a, a choice? Wouldn't it be a, a debate between those who are pro-choice versus those who are pro-birth? Meaning yeah. that their that their issues. If you're pro-birth, your issues end once the child is born. Yep. Because if if you were pro-life, then then when the child was born, then your concerns would be just beginning. Absolutely. I mean, the same people banning abortion are people that refuse to expand 
um, the ACA to cover more people or to expand Medicaid. Medicaid. They're the same people that refuse to even expand health insurance coverage for women right after they give birth, right? They refuse to expand SNAP benefits or welfare or housing for low-income people. They refuse to, um, they want to cut free and reduced lunches for kids in schools. I mean, it's not about life. It's about control. And, it, you know, I mean, I have a lot of analysis of why is it that the Republican Party is so adamant. And there certainly are religious people that, you know, genuinely believe in, you know, that a fetus is a human being and that abortion is bad. But I don't really think that's why we're in the situation we're in today. I deeply believe that abortion is a lot about race, it's about gender, and it's about economics. It's about keeping a, a large, um, poor group of people available to work for very little. It's about keeping uh, white men in power and, and not threatened by women. I and keeping women, you know, to use a cliche, barefoot and pregnant and under their control. If you take away from women the ability to control when and how many children they have, um, women lose control of their lives. They lose control of their 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 careers, their work, their you know um, their bodies, their health. I mean, and I you know keep in mind also that um, pregnancy is dangerous. It's fourteen times more dangerous pregnancy and childbirth than than abortion. And you know particularly for some communities, black women, for instance, are three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And you know the politicians that are passing abortion bans won't address the crisis we're having in this country with black maternal mortality. I mean, it's more dangerous to give birth as a black, as a black woman in Louisiana than it is in like Malawi. I mean, countries that are developing countries with very rudimentary healthcare systems and they don't care. They don't care. I mean, infant mortality. We have some of the highest rates of infant mortality in the developed world. And they won't pass legislation. They won't pass the, the Momibus Act before Congress. They're blocking that legislation to address uh, infant mortality. If they cared about babies, if they cared about life, they would be passing those laws, um, both you know for newborns, but also for children. But they don't. I mean, we in the U.S. we have one of the highest child poverty rates in the developed world, particularly for children of color, and they don't give a crap. Oops, sorry. They don't. They don't care about that. So I, I just don't think it's about life. I don't think it's about um, um, children, because if it really was, they'd be working on these issues as well. No, no, no worries. I, I don't think crab violates any, F <laughs> any FCC regulations. The FCC is so not going to be upset. Yeah, I really I try not to do that. <laughs> we're, we're in safe territory there. Um, I want to turn our attention for the time we have remaining to the actual opinion that was leaked. And one of my takeaways uh, as probably one of the non-nerdy lawyers, non-lawyers who's nerdy enough to read the entire opinion, all what 98 pages. All 98 pages. One of my takeaways was that, and this may be very cynical in my view, in my part, but if I take uh, Justice Alito at his word, the moment a woman is pregnant, she loses a portion of her now constitutionally protected right to privacy. Say more about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, so... You know, a big something he says in the opinion is the word abortion doesn't occur in the Constitution, therefore it's not not protected. And there's no long history, which actually I think he's he's wrong on this, but he says there's no long history of legal abortion in this country, and he completely elides the fact that abortion was considered part of a right to privacy that what pre-existed Roe and ha does have a long history in this country. I mean, people have never liked the government rifling in their affairs and is um, part of several of the amendments in the Bill of Rights, which was the original 10 bills that passed right after the Constitution was adopted. And those, and I'll just give you some examples. And, and this is how the early justices talked about a right to privacy. They said that 
you know, there's a long history of not wanting the government to interfere in our affairs. And in the very Constitution, this is reflected in things like the Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable search and seizure. The government can't just burst into your house and start rifling through your drawers without probable cause. They have to have a reasonable reason. Or the First Amendment right to associate. You should be able to associate with somebody without the government interfering. Um, the um, uh, Fifth Amendment right not to self-incriminate. You should be able to keep your private business private. They shouldn't be able to force you to talk about it. The Even the, and this is very archaic, the Third Amendment right not to have to quarter soldiers. The government shouldn't be able to make you um, welcome soldiers into your home and sleep in your bed and eat your food. OK, so those are the kinds of uh, um, amendments that the court um, in actually Griswold, which was the contraception decision in 1965, referenced when they talked about a right to privacy. And those and it wasn't it didn't originate in Griswold, but it was articulated strongly in Griswold. And, you know, so they said that there, um, you know, there is this longstanding idea that the government should stay out of her business. It appears in several places in the in the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. And in the Ninth Amendment, it says that the Bill of Rights are not all the rights you have. Um, there are there are just because we don't say you have a right doesn't mean you don't have that right. Uh, that those rights are retained by the people. So the court looked at all that and said, there is a right to privacy. And that right to privacy includes abortion. And then they went on in later years to expand that to include, for instance, in Lawrence versus Texas, the right to have consensual sexual interactions with another adult in the privacy of your own home. That was the Texas sodomy law. And that has been, you know, the sort of foundational constitutional right that has protected our business, you know, what we do in our homes, you know, from the government coming in and rifling through our underwear drawers. I mean, there was a famous quote, which I just want to quote because I love it so much, if I can find it, where um, where in the in Griswold, um, Brennan said, um, and let's see if I can find it um, in my in my piece right here, and I may not be able to, but basically what he says is that, you know, a married couple in their own bedroom should be able to use contraception and, and have, you know, marital sex in their bedroom without the government sticking their hand into the marital bedroom and wagging their finger and saying, no, 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 don't do it that way. Do it this way. No, you can't use contraception. And they shouldn't be able to interfere in that relationship. He said it much better than that. But basically, um, you know, that, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I can't find the actual quote. I have my my notes here, but it's, I don't see it. But, um, and I, I just fear that this decision fundamentally strikes at the right to privacy. And it's, it's kind of ironic at a time when the right wing is saying, you know, my body, my choice, I shouldn't have to wear a mask in public. Yet, you know, they will support the idea of, you know, politicians getting down between women's legs and, directing what happens when they visit their um, their medical doctors or for that matter, what happens in the privacy of their bedrooms and you know what they can and can't do. Because at the end of the day, this is really about sex. It's about are Americans allowed to have non-procreative sex or not? Are, are, and women in particular. Because if you say you can't have abortion and you can't use contraception. And, and remember, many forms of hormonal contraception, conservatives and, and, or anti-abortion people argue cause abortion, like the IUD, like, um, you know, because it's, it's not just in your question, you asked about when a pregnancy is established, but they actually, it's, they think it's abortion even before a pregnancy is established because they think once the egg meets the, the um, sperm, that there's a full human being there. And that's before the zygote has implanted in the wall of the uterus. And medically, that's when a pregnancy starts. But they don't think that even a fertilized egg should be allowed to be, you know, prevented from implanting in the side of the uterus. And that's what an IUD does and potentially what what um, oral hormonal contraceptions do. So, I, you know, they basically don't want people to have non-procreative sex. You know, you know again... Uh, I was fascinated, uh, uh, and I guess I, I look I, I looked at the opinion as a non-lawyer, just my, based on my understanding of the Constitution. 
um, I was also fascinated because from the words that um, Justice Alito said when he said that a, the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in nation's history. And I was fascinated by those words because when you read the Declaration of Independence, it establishes that the country was founded on liberty and equality. And yet equality was not deeply rooted in the nation's history, at least codified until 1868. And as you pointed out earlier, really not until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. So, so how, at what point does the Supreme Court, I know people say the, the Constitution is where the Supreme Court says it is, but when do they get to be subjective historians as well? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that completely worried me. Because that's how I got at the beginning. I was talking about how this could be the blueprint or a playbook for how to erode all kinds of rights. I mean, other than basically the rights of the white male property guys that had rights at the beginning of the country, right? Those are the only people whose rights are guaranteed because they have a long history of being protected. But everybody else's rights obviously have been compromised and only really established until post-civil rights movement, right? Um, and so using his reasoning, um, he's basically importing the, the values and the rights and the um, sort of legal thinking of people 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and saying that's what rules today. And then, of course, he says, and if you don't like it, go to the legislature and change it. Well, we know how that works, right? They've already gerrymandered our legislatures to the degree and Congress to the degree that we can't get anything done. I mean, Congress has not passed anything productive other than budget bills, which are not subject to the filibuster, you know, for a really long time. And, you know, I, it sends chills through my bones when I read that part of the decision, because it was clearly saying exactly what you said, which is that, um, you know, people of color and women in this country have not had long established rights. We have not had, you know, women were, didn't even have the vote until a hundred years ago. I mean, you know, if you, if that's the standard you want to use for who has rights and who doesn't, we're all in trouble. You talked about this, this fight for quality, and I'm, I'm thinking back to Shelby County v. Holder and Chief Justice Roberts used, in, in, in my opinion, sociological rationale to say that times have changed to just the irony. Yeah. with the clearance. So, 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 it you know this whole this whole uh, argument that you're making is that it doesn't just stop with Roe. It, it, it's, it's, you, you can't say that have a legislature change it when you've given states the authority to gut the Voting Rights Act, which was established for some very, very important reasons in our democracy. And then you turn your sights to say, well, Lawrence might be in trouble and, and Loving might be in trouble and Griswold might be in trouble. All of these things that happen to make us closer to that ubiquitous, uh, more perfect union. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember in the Shelby decision, RBG made a really powerful statement. Um, and I'm not going to get it completely right. I need to be better with my quotes. But she remember her comment about how, um, Rainey? you know, for, yeah, throw away your umbrella. You know, uh, I mean, it's the umbrella that keeps you from getting wet in the rain. And just because you're not getting wet, you can't throw away your umbrella on the assumption is that because you're dry and you're in the rain. So therefore, you know, you don't need the umbrella. Um, you know, that was so galling to me when um, when in the Shelby decision, when they said that, you know, when it was so clear the country's, you know, and, and look what's happened since Shelby. Right. They've passed all these voting restrictions. They've consolidated gerrymandering. I mean, we are a significantly less democratic country today than we were on the day they struck down Shelby as a direct result of Shelby. And, you know, and they're like, well, just Congress can pass a new voting rights act if they still think there's racism in the country. But the problem is Congress is completely captured by the right and, and by the system, the filibuster, which was put in place back in the day to keep control over the, you know, the law by the southern states. And so um, 
I worry about our country. And, and ultimately, I guess at one level, I, it's not sustainable what they're doing. Um, and, and I guess, you know, there have been, you know, autocratic countries that are not democratic. And but I just Americans are different. Americans, at least, I don't know, maybe they're not different. I mean, I, I, I used to have faith in Americans and I, I, I'm having less faith in them because they get I feel like in so many ways they get misled and tricked um, and, and confused by um, a lot of the t ways and conversations on the right and the whole like QAnon thing. I mean, the, the fact that all those people descended on the Capitol on January 6th, that just really worried me because I'm like, they're not rational. They're not thinking, they're not reading. And, and you know, so I don't know, maybe we will go down that route, but I feel like there's enough people who will be disadvantaged by that system who have been grown up thinking they deserve rights. I just can't imagine at the end of the day, they're going to get away with this, but maybe they will. Well, you know, you know, I, I uh, teach, um, I teach a civics course. And one of the things um, that, that uh, I have said to my class for a number of years is that don't look at Roe as an abortion case. Look at Roe. Privacy case, yeah, totally. And and the, I think the fact that we look at Roe as an abortion case, and therefore it's something that impacts women. Yes, we we look at the Voting Rights Act as something that helped Black people. Totally, yeah. And and meanwhile, these are privacy issues, and that they each time an erosion of privacy is yeah. it, it, it takes place. It affects every American. So we need to look at it in, in that context. Because in that list that you gave, um, you, you might very well add that now corporations, by way of Hobby Lobby and Citizens yep. United, now have some First Amendment rights. So yep. it's not it's not just one landmark case overturned here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, humans are losing rights and corporations are gaining rights and and gaining money. And, and at the end of the day, you know, really, I think it's about money. It's about I mean, if you look at wealth inequality in this country, it's just astronomical and it's accelerated. And, you know, the rich people, it's like Musk buying Twitter. The rich people want to control the levers of society and you know, they, to some degree, I think are using abortion to do that, but I, and, and manipulating people to do that. But I, I absolutely agree that voting rights and abortion rights are intimately intertwined. Um, I think abortion is all about race. Uh, going back to, I think, reproduction. I teach a class called Reproductive Justice, and we start with slavery. And we talk about the ways in which people have controlled uh, other people's reproduction for profit and for political power since the very founding of our country. And things like, um, you know, you look, what were the big issues post Biden getting elected? What were legislatures and conservative states doing? Um, passing voting restrictions and voter suppression measures and passing abortion bans with a little dollop of anti-trans stuff on the side. But the main two mobilizing issues that the right uses whenever they lose an election is um, abortion and voting. They they go after um, the voting rights of black people, but people of color, particularly young people, particularly students and low income people by making voting harder to get, make it, meaning you have to wait in a line for eight hours. And if you're in a minimum wage job, you lose your job. So you're not going to vote. And, um, and and abortion because it's it's about controlling women and it's about um, uh, you know so anyway yes I totally agree with you I totally agree with you it's a privacy decision yeah finally um, we haven't talked about this aspect of it I'd like to have you uh, opine if you would does the does the the un, what has been called an unprecedented leaked opinion in your view, have any bearing on the court's leg legacy at all? How do, you, how do you view that? On the court's legacy, you said? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just reading, I think, in the New York Times this morning, how they were saying they thought that this leaked opinion is on par with um, Deep Throat and the Pentagon Papers. And, you know, I do think it's a seismic shift. And 
you know, I don't fully understand it. Um, you know, I've thought a lot less about that and the impact on the court than I've thought about thought about the issue and the opinion. But I'm, you know, I, of course, I have thought a little bit about it. But I think it fundamentally is a reflection of the politicization of the court and the breakdown of um, collegiality at the court. You know, I remember, and it always perplexed me, but I, I remember that Scalia and RBG were friends. They went to the opera together. Their families got together on holidays. If you read Scalia and RBG, they were diametrically opposed. And if you read their dissents you know, against each other, they were vicious. Uh, well, Scalia was vicious against her. I think she was just argued strongly. But, you know, and I it always perplexed me that they could have a conversation, but clearly they could, that they were friends. And and I always at some level respected that. And I thought, you know, it's like bipartisanship in Congress. It used to be that across the aisle, people worked together. That's how they got things done. But Washington has become so politicized ever since. And again, it goes back to when Obama was elected. I just think white people freaked the hell out when Obama got elected. And you had the rise of the Tea Party. You had the rise of, of you know, it, I mean, the white supremacy had always been in the U.S. from the very beginning, but it, it was, a, you know, it was not as public. I mean, you know, remember David Duke, right? But it was always kind of like mainstream Republican Party would distance themselves from people like David Duke back in the day. Now they embrace them. Now they hold them up. And I think that, you know, and the same with women's rights. I mean, it's just now it's become so divided and vitriolic and people demonize each other that I think that this leaked opinion, I, I mean, that must be happening at the court. That must be happening at the court, whether it's among the justices themselves or the clerks or the, you know, I just don't know. But to me, this is a fundamental breakdown of the institution of the Supreme Court, that something like this could happen. And I think that it's a result of the breakdown of the idea that we can communicate across political differences, that we can have political differences and still respect each other and still go to the opera together. Professor Kerry Baker, I want to thank you so much for joining me again on today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated your insight, your wisdom, and your passion. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Paul McGraw is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.